Friends, grace and peace to you in Jesus' name. Amen. My grandfather died when I was a sophomore in college. And I remember very well, after the funeral, we were gathered at one of my aunt's house and, you know, telling stories, eating snacks, doing what you do on the afternoon after carrying a friend to the grave. And my youngest cousin dropped a full open two-liter bottle of soda onto the kitchen floor, and it exploded all over the place. Nobody yelled. Nobody lost their minds. We all just worked together quickly to clean it all up. And when we were finished, my aunt was standing there with this very pensive look on her face. And she said, I wonder how long it's going to be before my whole body doesn't just tense up and shut down when something like that happens, just waiting for Dad to explode. See, my grandpa was a tough man. He worked hard. He drank hard. He yelled a lot, and sometimes worse. My other grandpa died when I was in high school, and I adored him. I looked up to him. He was tall and handsome and gentle and kind. Could not have been more different from my other grandpa. He was brilliant and helpful. He was a huge fish in a small pond. He made the best blueberry pancakes from scratch in the whole world. And he took really good care of my grandma, who was not always an easy woman to take care of. When he died, his funeral was attended by over 2,000 people crammed into a a, a gymnasium on the campus where he was president, a, a building that now bears his name. In the afternoon after his funeral, we were back at Grandma and Grandpa's house telling stories, eating snacks. And my cousin told a story that none of us had ever heard before. Apparently, Grandpa had told him shortly before he died It's a story about how when he was in the service back during World War II, they found out that one of the men in their unit was gay, or at least they assumed he was. And they dragged him out of bed in the middle of the night and beat him senseless. And Grandpa, to hear my cousin tell it, he told that story without a hint of remorse or shame. Now, already at that point in my life, I had, I had spent a fair amount of my time and energy on, on the movement for gay rights in church and society. And so to hear that story about this man I so dearly loved and admired broke my heart. How do you tell the difference between a sinner and a saint? What makes a, a good man good, and a bad man bad. A good grandpa, good. A bad grandpa, bad. Sometimes it seems like it should be easy to tell, but it depends on perspective. It depends on where you stand. My brother loved and had a totally different experience of that meaner grandpa than I did. People are complicated that way, aren't they? This morning, we heard a very 
strange and hard-to-read story. God bless you both for hanging in there, right? It's a story about the kingdom of Israel, this, this tender, fragile unity that had been forged, and we heard this story last week, forged by King David and then expanded by his son, King Solomon. But today we hear that just three generations in, Solomon's kids and their friends, and already this kingdom is falling apart. It dissolves into old rivalries and vengeances and Civil war breaks out and the kingdom is divided, really never to be unified again. There's two guys, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Don't be ashamed if you can't tell the difference between those two. The the names are strikingly similar, which I think may actually be part of the point. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. He was going to become king, or so he thought. Solomon had been kind of mean, so he takes counsel with the elders, and the elders say, hey, why don't you lighten up a bit, right? Serve the people, be kind, be compassionate. And then he takes counsel with the youngers, and they make a crass joke about Solomon's loins. And because they're younger and they hung out together, and, you know, dudes will be dudes, he follows their advice, and he doubles down on his father's cruelty. And those who don't like that very much inevitably rise up against him. And Jeroboam leads a bunch of folks up north and they turn their back on the southern kingdom and they say, we're done with you. They turn their back on Jerusalem and the presence of God in that place. And now you have two kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And throughout the scriptures, it's not always clear what we're supposed to think about these two kingdoms. Indeed, they get varying treatments depending on who's telling the story, what king we're talking about. They're complicated. This last week, I was talking to a couple pastors. We were doing some Bible study about this story, and and one of the pastors said, so I'm, I'm confused. I forget from seminary. Whose side are we on? Which which kingdom is the good kingdom, right? The one with Jerusalem in it or the ones up north? I mean, who are we supposed to follow? Anyone want to hazard a guess? Neither. Or both. It's complicated. You know, Rehoboam should have listened to the old guys. But he listened to the dudes instead. And he was cruel and harsh. And he forced the issue and and forced a civil war. Jeroboam was like maybe a better guy. But hey, he turns his back on Jerusalem in the presence of God there. And then he makes two golden calves. And if you know your Bible, you know that when people start pouring gold to make a golden cow, it's not usually a good idea. So whose side are we on? Which one's right? How do you tell the difference between a sinner and a saint? It's complicated. A friend of mine, Pastor Nadia, uh, just came out with a book not too long ago. It's called Accidental Saints, Finding God and All the Wrong People. And she tells a story about how she was walking around in Denver where uh, she started a church, and she was just in the beginning stages of planting uh, that church. And they were walking around with a, a friend, Amy. And on our walk that day, we noticed a sizable memorial of sorts in the courtyard of a large, weird-looking church across the street from the Capitol building. 
The roof of the Pillar of Fire Church is crowned with the enormous pink call letters KPOF that light up at night, making it look like what it is, a Pentecostal church that doubles as a radio station. We squinted to read the inscription on the memorial. Alma, Alma White, founder of the Pillar of Fire Church, 1901. Turning to Amy, I said, Alma? That's a woman's name, isn't it? Did a woman plant a church in Denver in 1901? I didn't know many of women who had set out to start churches all by themselves, much less at the beginning of the 20th century. And so desperate for someone I could place in the category of hero or role model, since I too was setting out to be a female pastor of a new church in Denver, I pulled out my phone and Googled Alma White. My excitement about discovering a hero only built as I read her Wikipedia entry, Alma Bridwell White was the founder and a bishop of the Pillar of Fire Church. Oh my gosh, it's true, I thought. I went on to read that in 1918, she became the first female bishop in the United States. She was noted for her feminism. Yes! And her association with, wait for it, the Ku Klux Klan, her anti-Catholicism, her anti-Semitism, anti-Pentecostalism, racism, and hostility to immigrants. The next day, I called my Episcopal friend, Sarah, to tell her the story of how I thought I had a hero, only to find out she was a lousy racist. Sarah's response, email me her name. I'll add her to the litany of saints, along with all the other broken people of God. I didn't want Alma White's name on the litany of saints. Having her name lying on the table, illuminated by the nearby Paschal candle, alongside the names of St. Francis and Cesar Chavez, it just felt wrong. I want racists to stay in the racist box. When they start sneaking into the saint box, it makes me nervous. But that's how it works. On All Saints Sunday, I am faced with the sticky ambiguities around saints who were bad and sinners who were good. Personally, I think knowing the difference between a racist and a saint is kind of important. But when Jesus again and again says things like the last shall be first and the first shall be last and the poor are blessed and the rich are cursed and that prostitutes make great dinner guests, it makes me wonder if our need for pure black and white categories is not true religion, but maybe actually a sin. Knowing what category to place hemlock in might help us know whether it's safe to drink, but knowing what category to place ourselves and others in does not help us to know God in the way that the church so often has tried to convince us that it does. So how do you tell the difference between a sinner and a saint? Today we rejoice that while from our perspective we like to call some people good and other people bad, some grandpas are better than others, but that's all a matter of perspective. And people are complicated. And yet from God's perspective, God sees them as God makes them. God sees them as God calls them. God sees them as ones who are washed in the same waters as you and I. Places the same sign on their forehead, walks with them along their whole baptismal journey, and when it comes to a close, gathers them in, sees them for what they are by God's reckoning, not by our own. That is, as holy, beloved, sainted children of God. What a gift that God sees us as God calls us and not the way we see one another. Because folks, people are complicated. 
And yet, God walks with each and every one of us. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I think it's a good thing not to be racist, okay? I'm, I'm into that. And, and I believe that we should all work harder at doing more good in the world and doing less stupid stuff in the world, right? I mean, I think that's a good thing. But I'm also aware that when push comes to shove and when all is said and done, we don't make saints and sinners. God does. And God sees us as we are. Holy and beloved. When my cousin told that story about my good grandpa, it broke my heart. I didn't want to think of him as a mean, nasty guy. He was so kind. And yet I'm, I'm inclined to think that perhaps the Holy Spirit may have been active that day, reminding me to be careful about how I tell my story and how I tell your story, how I tell the stories of my family, the stories of my country, the stories of my people, the stories of our churches, to be careful about the judgments that we carry and place on one another. Because when viewed through the eyes of God, both of my grandfathers are holy, beloved, called, sainted children of God. Not because of what they did or left undone, but because of what God did for them in the waters of life. Come to the water, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you the water of life. Wipe every tear from every eye and call you home. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.